Thank you very much for coming. My name is Pat Dunleavy. I'm the uh, uh, head of the LSE Public Policy Group, and this is Jane Tinkler, who's uh, the actual brains behind this whole conference. Um, I wanted to just say a couple of words to welcome you. Firstly, to say that the uh, director and various pro-directors of LSE were hoping to be here, but uh, due to other unforeseen and difficult-to-change circumstances, they can't be. But uh, they did ask me to say that they wish the conference very well and they wish everybody very well and the LSE is very pleased to be able to uh, assemble an audience of such distinction as I can tell at a glance that it is. Um, the conference itself has two sessions now before lunch, the first of which is about thinking, uh, uh, current thinking and assessing impact and the next one is looking more at uh, uh, methods for impact and engagement. And I think one of the things we'd like to stress is that although we're all of us thinking about the research excellence framework uh, in 2014 and the impacts program here, this conference is about how we as academics, we as universities would like to assess impact and it's designed to help everybody think about the issues. I think we're all at the very early learning stages of thinking about the issues and hopefully even if the, the uh, REF 2014 has a particular method, the next REF will get better and uh, will move beyond what we might call the sort of starting base methods that are being used. So I think uh, the two panels before lunch are, are very general. They're all in here. Then we'll break for lunch and Jane will say a few words about lunch arrangements. We have an hour for lunch and then afterwards we have the first of two sessions where you have a choice between a kind of more policy orientated and, or general session that's happening in here and a more hands-on session for those of you who uh, would like to uh, learn more about what, what we've been doing in our handbook and what we're suggesting, which is also incidentally on this, um, uh, on this little uh, memory stick. So it's yours to keep and cherish. <laughs> But if you'd like to come and hear more hands-on stuff, that's what the first two sessions in the afternoon in the smaller theatre will be doing. And then finally, at the end, we have a big session with people from um, Hefke, David Sweeney, of course, the brains behind the ref, and uh, uh, Astrid Wissenberg from ESRC, and so on. And following that, we will have a very uh, well-earned uh, drinks reception in the, in, the, in the lobby outside. So I hope that's... Uh, Okay, and that you're already thinking about the two sessions after lunch, which, which, uh, whether you'll be in the main theatre or the little theatre. Now I'm going to hand over to Jane. She'll just run through some quick housekeeping, then we'll get started. Well, just a note on lunch. Unfortunately, because we're still in term time, trying to find a, a big enough space for us all for lunch wasn't quite possible. So, but there are vouchers in your pack for um, a, a great deal at the Garrick, which is the LSE. Um, uh, canteen and uh, there are um, maps around so that you'll be able to find that. Um, I'd like to ask if you could turn your mobiles to silent. Um, feel free to tweet throughout the sessions. We will be. The hashtag we're using is LSE Impact Conf and if you want to keep track on what people are saying then um, do use the LSE Impact blog Twitter feed. This is the first of a series of sessions that we'll be running over the next year and there is in, also in your packs a feedback uh, form where we ask you to tell us the sort of se sessions you might like to see over and come to over the next year. So do please fill that in and that will be really useful for us planning our series of programmes over the next academic year. 
And lastly, just to let you know, that all the sessions today will be podcasted and the um, presenters' uh, presentations put up on, on the blog. So um, hopefully that will mean that um, you can go back and, and um, tell your colleagues about this and, and allow them to listen to the sessions that are most of interest to them. So do keep an eye on the blog over the next few days and we'll put all of those things on there. But I'm going to now hand straight over to Patrick for the, for the first session. Well, I'm joined on the panel by Professor Alan Hughes from the Centre for Business Research at the University of Cambridge and Thomas Ulrichson from Public and Corporate uh, Economic Associates. And they're experts on assessing impact. What we're going to be doing today is uh, looking at current thinking in assessing impact. And... Um, So uh, that's them. And th uh, since they're much more data guys than, than me, I'm going to skip over the data bits of my own presentation and concentrate instead on um, really two different ways of thinking about impacts. The sort of long-term evidence-based way, which I hope we'll all be developing, and the rather specific Hefke uh, world way of thinking it. The Hefke world is rather like Disney world. It's kind of very interested in fairy tales, uh, particularly fairy tales of influence. And this is really the, 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 the thing that I think we need to think about in the, in the longer term. But uh, obviously in the shorter term we have to think about um, the 2014. So I want to just uh, define what external research impacts mean, explore a little bit about how they operate. I'll skip across the middle bit of my talk and just contrast that really with the, the Hefke uh, bit. So I think it's very important we have a good definition of what we mean by research impact. And this is the definition that we're suggesting, that an impact is a recorded or otherwise auditable occasion of influence from university research, or from an academic based on their research, upon another actor or organisation. So you notice what that uh, doesn't say. It doesn't say anything about the benefits. It doesn't say about what changed. It's just about recording occasions of influence. And so the way we would do that if we were looking at uh, academic impacts would be, I think, heavily based around, for example, citation data, although one could use lots of other information. And a citation just says, I found this research useful. Uh, you might say, well, don't people cite things negatively? we have established empirically that uh, a fraction of 1% of citations are negative citations. So, you know, essentially, if you have a citation, it doesn't tell you what happened. It doesn't say, has this changed the academic's life just because I cited you? Have I changed my behavior? Have I gone out and done other things? It's just a recorded occasion of influence. <coughs> And certainly in our group, what we would argue is that if we were assessing external impacts, we should assess external impacts in the same way. That is in a metrics-based way, that is in an objective way, where we record occasions of influence. That is, cases where somebody in business, in the government process, in the public policy process, in civil society, uh, references or refers to academic work and shows that they have found it useful or effective. So essentially then we have this very simple idea of metrics uh, of, of impacts in which academic impacts and external impacts are the same 
thing. There are auditable occasions of influence, and we can audit them, we can record them, and we can establish that objectively they have occurred. Now, a simple view says these, these things happen directly. Actually, a slightly more complex view would need to take account of the fact that external influences particularly are often accumulated over quite long periods of time. And so it may be that somebody does a lot of research, say, at the present time on uh, reducing health inequalities, that they put this to ministers, maybe ministers aren't interested, but maybe the next government is interested. So accumulation means that an awful lot of academic work adds to what we call a dynamic knowledge inventory. We put dynamic in because when we first outlined this concept to a committee at the British Academy, a business person who was sitting on the committee said, oh, well, we don't like inventory in business. Inventory is something that's not sold goods. You know, it costs a lot and it sits in the warehouse and clutters things up. Um, well, that's true in the world of goods, but in the world of ideas, they're remarkably easy to store and preserve and look after, and uh, they don't go out of date quite as quickly. So a dynamic knowledge inventory is a whole set of ideas, a whole repertoire, and what we think makes an advanced industrial society different from a less advanced society is that the dynamic knowledge inventory is very large and has a lot of different things in it to which many academic disciplines have contributed. And it's also important to look inside disciplines and to think which bits of disciplines are having external impacts. And the sort of classic rather science-based view that you get a lot from Hefke and from government ministers and civil servants is very much focusing on just one thing inside academic disciplines, namely the idea of discovery, the idea that somebody is doing an experiment or they're looking through a microscope and they suddenly find something which can then be turned immediately or directly into something that matters in economic or public policy terms. Uh, maybe you, 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 the official view will tend to acknowledge an applications area within disciplines and a, a bit of an interaction between discovery and application, but it, it's still a fairly simple view. Whereas we think that everything that academics do actually has pretty well impact. And in particular, in addition to discovery and application, we think integration, especially in the social sciences and the humanities and social, uh, cultural areas, integrative work that re-theorizes and re-understands, re-comprehends, re-synthesizes information is just as important as discovery work. And renewal work, teaching and renewing the profession, may not have direct implications, but it, it's still very important. Sometimes has interesting features when PhD or master students go into firms and help them immediately to solve problems with some brand new piece of information. Now, so all aspects of the single discipline work we think are important, but also there are lots of intermediary, uh, interdisciplinary work that's important, so bridging intellectuals. Some of the big ideas that influence wide-scale change are cross-disciplinary. Universities themselves, the main job of a university is to provide local integration across disciplines. And of course, academic service is a very powerful way in which uh, academic and research ideas directly influence, particularly public policy. And finally, an issue that we're going to be talking about later in the day, we have a complicated media interface. 
uh, impacts interface. Uh, so we've got media in there, we've got specialist, professional media, economic and trade journals, close to public policy journals. We have a huge range of professions who use a lot of academic ideas. We have corporations, big corporations like uh, Hewlett-Packard, and we've got James Johns from Hewlett-Packard later on, who will give you a sort of big corporate view uh, that hoovers up lots of information from lots of different kinds of professions, including the social sciences, entrepreneurs, uh, consultants, and you can't directly bypass these people, as a lot of academics tend to naively assume. The impacts interface exists and is as complex as this, including think tanks and policy communities and NGOs as well as government bodies, because they do useful roles in assembling and repackaging information. So I think we need to take quite a complex view of uh, external impacts, and if you you look at the Hefke documents, you'll see that they classify all of this under the thing of indirect influence. Well, you know, the world is indirect, the whole world is indirect. There is nothing but indirect influence, uh, we would argue. So let me uh, skip across section two because my colleagues are going to cover this much better than me and just contrast the view that. Uh, we, uh, I've just given you with the Hefke view of external impacts and the, the problems that come from its reliance on case study methods. So this is where we left off in the what we, uh, I would think of as a more realistic view. What else do we need to do to convince Hefke that we've had impacts? It's not enough in their view to say well You've talked to a lot of business people, you've given seminars, you've had external audiences. These are just in the footholds of establishing impact as far as they are concerned. And the first thing that you need to be able to show them in some way is that there's been a change in activities or outputs in the organization that you're interacting with. And, uh, that, you know, and that this change is attributable to your research. And as the multiple other factors box sort of sums, sums it up, you know, this is asking to, us to give a kind of Ketris Paribus demonstration that, that what we did and the research inputs that we had directly caused a change in activities or outputs. That's a big ask, especially because you are not in the organization uh, that you're being asked about, and it may be very difficult for you to establish that. But Hefke doesn't stop there. They don't just want to know about how the organization's activities or outputs have changed. They also want to know about how social outcomes have changed. And that's another big ask. And again, the number of um, so, uh, forces and so on in, in operation has, has increased. And finally, they actually want you to do a social cost-benefit analysis. So it's not enough to say, we helped BP drill deeper in the ocean than ever before, but you have to show somehow that that has advanced social welfare. So there's these three extra elements that you have to give in the Hefke provision, and the way that they are going to get this incredibly rich, incredibly detailed, incredibly ambitious account from you is via case studies. So every 10 staff will have to submit, uh, there'll be a case study for every 10 staff, 
And these case studies are going to be evaluated according to this Hefke uh, document in terms of these classifications. Um, and what mainly seems to be driving these classifications is, on the one hand, an assessment of significance or value of the research, and on the other hand, an assessment of the reach or relevance of the research, so how, how many people are affected by it. So I've tried to put this into a little diagram. This is my diagram, not Hefke's diagram. But uh, let's start with, so we put the reach or relevance on the bottom axis, low, medium, or high for simplification. We put the significance or value of the, the impact on the vertical axis. And it seems that the really exceptional stuff is going to have to be high impact in a narrow way or perhaps a little bit le less high impact but in a very broad way. And then the three-star stuff is going to have to be uh, very similar in the kind of medium to high way, but it might go a little bit lower if, if it's a very wide relevance. And then we have the two-star, which means very good, and one-star, which means good. And uh, that looks as if it's the whole of the picture, but it's not really, because there are some additional criteria in the Hefke setup. Um, and these criteria are... Firstly, the council will look back 15 years, uh, which is, say, 1997, maybe, might be a good start point, start of the Labour government. Very good for social sciences, generally, the Labour government. So, good start point. Push back to 15 years. But if it took 20 years, tough luck, you're not going to get that counted. Um, and secondly, it's very important that the impacts have to be based on research, which is judged to be of a certain quality, the quality they're asking for is two-star in terms of academic starring. That's a different starring system we won't go into. But they also want the research to have a very distinctive impact. If you can't show that it had, has had a distinctive impact, or if the quality of the original research that produced the impact is not what Hefke deems to be at least two-star or better, then there's a danger you enter into this unclassed group so if you've just had impact because, I don't know, you're good at consultancy or you've got a pop academic or uh, you know people or something like that, that's not really enough to sustain a claim of research impact. Well, <clears throat> I don't know how we should think about this, but if we're thinking about the case studies, the things that you might do to prepare are to prepare a very long list of possible case studies to collate all the information that you can find, publications, contacts, testimonials, etc., for these cases. And uh, it's very easy to lose this information. And Hefke has told us really in the middle of the period. So, you know, you might want to particularly go back and recover the early bits of the period as much as you can. <coughs> then you'd, you'd want to try and talk to people you interacted with and try and establish what changed as a result or what you could say plausibly has changed as a result of of your interactions with them, and you need to push that back all the way to 97, which in many cases will involve talking to retired people and all kinds of people. Um, the cases themselves, some of them in the impact setup that Hefke has published, just cover a single person. Um, so although you have one case for every 10 people, a lot of the cases submitted and, and judged successful seem to just cover one bod. And obviously it would be better to cover two or three people <coughs> rather than just one person. 
And if you have group case studies, it would obviously be better if they covered ten people, really, rather than just uh, two or three. And uh, the final thing you might be thinking of doing, particularly, is monitoring very closely the cases that you, you think are possibles, the probables particularly, all the way from now through to 2013. But this is really a short-run, immediate, how do we deal with Hefke's rather particular kinds of provisions. And I hope that in the longer run, we'll move towards the more evidence-based work that my colleagues are going to talk about now. So I'll hand over immediately to Alan. Perhaps I should introduce Simon Hicks, who's our chairman, and who will now take control of proceedings. <laughs> Thanks, Patrick. <laughs> OK, over to you. No, I need to uh, just, click, just click the mouse. No, that's not me. Well, while, while the um, while the part this is uh, this Thomas Oliver's time, how do I get mine? Do you, Chris, do you know why it's Tom? Sorry. Alt tab. Alt tab. Ah, very good. Okay, problem solved, impact achieved. Um, I'd like to thank Pat for inviting me to speak here today. Um, he said that what um, we were good at was evidence, evidence-based analysis on impact. So I just want to say something about the broader range of work that we do that leads to the particular thing I'm going to talk about. Um, at the Centre for Business Research, we've done a number of uh, pieces of work in the area of what you might broadly call impact. Uh, and some of it involves quite detailed case studies of um, the way in which particular technologies get commercialized. That's funded by the EPSRC and is looking at photonics and electronics. And uh, with Thomas, and he'll be talking about this in a little more detail, we've done work for Hefke on evaluating the broad impacts of third stream funding. And we've also done uh, a lot of work comparing the UK with, with other countries, particularly the US. And the project I'm going to talk about now is, is a direct result of work we did with MIT, looking at how universities and um, external organizations interact. And the particular work I'm going to talk about today was funded by ESRC with a lot of um, funding council support. And it was a, an investigation of the way in which external organizations and academics and universities interact. And one of the things we wanted to do was actually get some evidence on what academics say they do in relation to their relationships with external organizations. And we wanted to benchmark that against what businesses say they expect or get from um, university interactions. And we framed this work, and two very large surveys follow, which I'll talk about in detail, in a particular view of what you might think the role of universities is. And the first thing is to remind ourselves, as we sometimes have to do, that one of the key roles is actually educating people um, and increasing the stock of codified knowledge. And a lot of what Pat's had to say is about how we can actually get metrics in relation to that particular box. And um, he's expressed the strong view that you can do it in an auditable way. Um, but there's always historically been a very powerful role for universities in what we classify as a problem-solving role. Now, the interesting thing about the problem-solving role is, historically, uh, in the UK and in other countries, it's been a very powerful motivation for the linking of universities initially to regional economies. So if you look at the history of the UK university system, 
the great provincial universities that were founded in the 19th centuries were founded with very close interrelationships um, with their communities. Um, and that continues to this day. So you've got a very wide range of problem-solving activities um, which are carried out on a contract basis or a joint research basis. And then there's a set of activities which we classify as public space activities. We call them public space activities because entry into this space to as it were, interact um, with universities and the academics inside them is not initially predicated on any instrumental contractual relationship. In a way, it's, it's fulfilling part of the intermediary role that, that Pat mentioned was very important in translating any impacts. You have to have lots of interactions between organizations and individuals. And provided universities can protect this public space initially, it provides a very rich um, location in which all kinds of activities can develop, which can feed into the other boxes. And so understanding what might be happening in that public space arena um, is very important. The other thing that we uh, couched our research in was in an attempt to break down the usual linear interpretation that there's something called basic research and there's something called applied research. And once you start interfering with it and metricating it, basic research gets damaged and applied research gets reified. And our view, stemming, um, I think, from a very interesting book by Donald Stokes on the US science and innovation system, is that this is a misleading view, and that, as he puts it in his book, Pasteur's Quadrant, in fact, the history of scientific advance is driven by interactions in what he calls Pasteur's Quadrant. And this arises from thinking about why do people do things? What motivates research? Is it fundamental understanding? Yes, now I'm from a business school, so you've got to have a two-by-two box to uh, demonstrate the underlying intellectual heart of the argument. Is it for considerations of use? Yes, no. If it's, not, if it's not for use at all and it's only for fundamental understanding, he characterizes this as uh, a box inhabited by Niels Bohr. If it's only um, concerned with um, considerations of use and fundamental understanding, he classifies this as Pasteur's quadrant and he uses the evolution of Pasteur's own scientific research and shows its deep interrelationship um, with questions of practice. So user-inspired research is very important. And then the applied-only box is uh, Edison, who famously said, nobody in my laboratories will spend a penny of my money on spending any time on anything but basic research. So if you try and combine these analyses, you get this framework which we use. So universities have these varieties of research activity going on inside them. They have um, an educating role, and there's an interplay between these two through curriculum development and so on. Um, potential users, where these impacts that Pat was talking about are going to occur and attempt to be measured, include the private sector, but also the public sector, um, the third sector, and the broader community. And most importantly, there's an extremely wide range of knowledge exchange activities or pathways to impact, as the research councils now call them, by which these two domains can be related. And it's very important to emphasize that the kind of measurable things that Pat was talking about, publications, are very important in this pathways to impact route. If you ask businesses what they actually use as sources of knowledge and how they interact with the universities, publications are a very important part um, of what they do. At the bottom, you can see a number of things uh, which are increasingly um, thought to be important but are being sidelined, for instance, in, in revised versions of Hype to do with community uh, activity. And in the middle, spin-offs, patenting and licensing, you see the things which have come to dominate the rhetoric of discussions about impact. That the, if universities are going to have a wealth-creating role, then we should look closely at what academics do in terms of direct commercialization 
uh, of their activities. So what we did was try and find out what academics actually say they do, both in terms of how they characterize their research and in, times, in terms of the way they interact um, with external organizations. And this produced the biggest uh, academic survey in the world to date. So we had over 22,000 replies. If you, if you replied, thank you very much. Uh, if you didn't reply, shame on you. Uh, but you are fully represented in the sample even if you didn't reply because the overall sample is not only big, um, it's very representative. And we, um, at the same time, did a survey of 2,500 businesses. And what I want to do very briefly is just say some of the insights that arise um, from looking at this work. If you take the sample as a whole um, and you uh, adjust it for various um, possible misrepresentations in terms of sampling, what you find is that commercialization activities strictly defined are actually quite widespread. 5% of academics, of these 126,000 academics, say they license their research, 7% patent, 4% are spun out of company, and 14% are formed or in a consultancy. If you gross those up to numbers, that's quite a lot of academics involved in what are regarded often as these core commercialization activities. But they're dwarfed by the other ways of interacting that academics report. These are not, not activities that are just done. They're ac activities where there's an external organization um, involved. So giving invited lectures, attending conferences organized uh, and with the attendance of external organizations, participating in networks, you know, 80, 60, 70% of academics are involved in these potential pathways um, to impact. Problem solving is also an extremely important part in terms of the frequency of academic activities. And one of the balloons that's very important there is 57% involved in informal kinds of interactions um, with potential users. And then also there are very strong community-based activities. So the kind of idea of an ivory tower full of academics doing basic research and ignoring the outside world is a complete misrepresentation of the way that individual academics both see themselves and can report themselves uh, in terms of doing things. But much more important is how misleading it is to focus only on the green box here. Because if you focus on that, you miss out a huge range of activities which potentially can relate to a wide range of impacts. But it's a particularly misleading picture if you use it to look at branches of academics. So we published a report uh, two weeks ago in which we focused on the arts and humanities and contrasted them with other academics. What I want to do in the remaining few minutes today, since this is the LSE, uh, is to look at how you might compare social scientists um, with other academics in terms of these kinds of activities. And in particular, what do social scientists look like if you compare them with the so-called STEM subjects? And so very briefly, I'm going to present some uh, evidence in relating uh, to that question. This is just the sample as a whole. What you'll see is that social scientists are actually the most numerous part of the UK um, academic community. Over 30% of all academics are in the social sciences. So we represent a major investment um, in the university sector. Interestingly, the STEM subjects are much smaller in terms of the system. Some might argue that's an imbalance. I make no comment. What about the kinds of research um, that people do? This is an attempt using a definition um, linked to that diagram I showed you to see how academics perceive their own research. And what you see here is that with the social sciences are red, 
in all the diagrams I'll show you is social scientists are much more likely than STEM subject academics to say that they're involved in applied research and they're somewhat less likely to say they're involved in basic research. But the key point about this diagram is how large proportions of academics regard themselves um, as being in each of these categories and in the qualitative work that went alongside this, many academics would argue that they move between these types of research. But the broad conclusion is social scientists are slightly more involved in academic research. In terms of the relevance of research to different domains, um, social scientists are less likely to say it has no relevance for an external organization. The red um, borders inside the blue. Um, STEM, much more likely to say it's got a commercial application. And social scientists, as you might expect, much more likely to say it's of relevance for public sector organizations. Now, this is a very important issue in relation to what Pat was saying, because if you have a domain of science where a key part of the interaction is with public policy and the public domain, it leads to particular problems in relation to identifying impact, because you may spend a great deal of time doing research, and if it's not ideologically acceptable or it doesn't fit with the current policy paradigm, it's very difficult to establish an impact. And in the discussion, I think we could usefully come back to that issue and what can be done about it. Commercialization activities, well, you can see why the STEM subjects are great fans of this kind of approach to what universities do, because they're much more likely to have been involved in commercialization activity. But look at the important role played by consultancies in the social sciences. And this is a very important um, aspect of social science interaction. Partnerships. Well, the first thing is that social scientists are clearly a more clubbable lot. Uh, we are much more willing uh, to be involved in partnerships. And that includes uh, partnerships with the, with, the, with the private sector. In terms of what the impact of external activities are on research, there's a great similarity across all academic disciplines. And this is shown here for STEM versus the social scientists. The most important thing is that in this sample of 22,000 responses, overwhelmingly, people felt there was a positive relationship between their external engagement and uh, their academic, so-called academic research. It provides new insights, new contacts, strengthens reputation, leads to new research projects. In other words, this kind of public space role in which you can make lots of contacts can sometimes move into more contractual relationships, but in general, playing in this space is regarded as positive, and similarly for teaching. Why do people interact? Um, there's a wide range of ways. Of course, no academic's ever going to say, I do it for money. So um, nearly all the academics say that financial considerations don't have a big part to play. You'll see that at the top left-hand corner as you look at it. Um, but all the other things are generally positively connected with forwarding the research activities. In the STEM subjects, raising funding for equipment um, tends to be uh, more important given the nature of the subject. What stops people from doing this? Well, the rhetoric of this debate, <laughs> yeah, the rhetoric of this debate is it's all about culture clashes, uh, different time scales, and so on. Well, if you look at this, they tend out, they turn out to be of very small importance. Um, disputes over IP also turn out to be of small importance, but that's because very few academics are actually involved in IP. Of course, you all recognize the lack of time. 
Well, this is actually an argument that people will always make, but has a particular context in the academic community because career structures are based around very clear incentive patterns. And the incentive patterns are heavily focused on the quantifiable research outputs that Pat mentioned. And so if you have uh, an incentive system driving for promotion in terms of one dimension of the activities you have to follow, and then you ask people to perform in teaching and administration, but also in so-called third stream activities, there comes a point at which it's very difficult to do all these things simultaneously. And that raises important questions about how universities structure um, their staff. Okay. Um, engagement with business. You'll see that the most important set of interactions are around people um, and training and in on-course student projects. In other words, again, a very complementary um, set of relationships. Problem solving. Social science is less involved here. Uh, it's much more uh, a STEM-based kind of activity. Whereas social scientists tend to be more involved in community-based activity. Now, what we might do is say, well, this is a one-eyed view of what's happening. What do businesses say? So we asked our businesses a similar set of questions. And the first thing we looked at was, why do businesses come to universities? And is it because they're driven by technology and STEM-based subjects? Well, if you look at uh, the interaction between universities and the outside business community in terms of innovation activity, it's certainly true that in relation to innovation narrowly defined, businesses go to the STEM subjects much more than to the social sciences. But the history of British industry is littered with major scientific advances which failed miserably because British business didn't organize itself properly or motivate people properly or think about all the ancillary activities that go with innovation apart from technology. And it's in these areas that increasingly businesses say they interact with the social sciences. Questions of financing, marketing, human resource management, logistics, and so on. Um, these are areas, in particular the marketing um, and human resource areas, where there is a very strong set of business interrelationships as reported by businesses. So finally, just a few uh, summary points. If you focus on very narrow commercialization pathways to impact, then social sciences, as is true for arts and humanities, um, will not do very well. But if you look at the full range of things that social sciences and the other academic disciplines do, you'll see a very wide range of sectors with which interaction occurs, and within the business community, a very powerful set of interactions relating to the wider um, needs of business. And finally, social scientists tend to have a much wider range of networking partnership arrangements, and they are particularly significant in relation to the public sector. So, a couple of words about what this might mean in terms of some of the issues Pat's raised. Well, the first is that it's possible to be very negative about the importance of case studies. And the arguments are well taken that these are very difficult to audit, and there are all kinds of questions um, about how you derive them. But one of the great strengths that the idea of looking at pathways to impact has is that provided they're assessed appropriately, then you can pay a lot of attention to the pathways that are developed and the mechanisms for trying. 
And actually, if you look at the standard treasury model, you don't know boo when the word treasury occurs, but the standard treasury model, it has a very particular logic to it in which impacts, as assessed in terms of what behavior changed, how much employment and so on was generated, is the very last stage of a process which goes from investment to activities to process changes and to intermediate changes and only finally to impact. And one of the things that uh, good narrative case studies can do is actually bring out everything that leads up to the point at which it actually becomes very difficult to attribute impact. And the key reason why it's very difficult to attribute impact is because mostly that involves uh, what you might call complementary investments. For a firm to translate its STEM-based interactions into a commercial successful product, requires investment by the firm and competitive behavior by the firm. And the STEM-based academics can never be in control of that part of it. In fact, they can't control the complementary investments. And the parallel argument for academics and public policymaking is exactly the same, where the complementary investment is the political will or desire to actually take some notice of evidence and translate that um, into policy. So what I hope I've shown is that academics have a very wide range of interactions. Uh, it's interaction not just with the business community. It follows multiple pathways. And we could have a useful debate about what that means for how you might assess impact. So thank you. Thanks. So thanks very much, Alan, for that discussion. I mean, what I'm going to be talking about today is shifting the discussion slightly. We're looking at a body of research we've been undertaking in collaboration with Alan over the last three, three to four years, looking at evaluating the government's knowledge exchange funding programs, um, most recently and currently the Higher Education Innovation Fund, but extending back to the Higher Education Reach Out to Business and Community Fund, which are really designed to try and bring the university uh, sector closer to the economy and society and achieve greater, more, perhaps more direct impacts. So I'm going to focus much more on the role of, this gov of government policy and the, the nature and scale of the impacts, and what's perhaps required to help increase the impact that academics can achieve from their, their, their research and teaching activities. Talk about, a bit about the growth in knowledge exchange activity over the last 10 years, as evidenced by the income that universities are, are securing from this, uh, this type of activity. Look at the role and the nature of government policy, what it's trying to, trying to achieve, what its aims are, and um, the scale of this policy over, over the last 10 years. And also look at some, just to add to a few of the comments that Anne has been making about the impacts, the nature of the impacts that uh, this type of more direct engagement with the economy society can have on external organisations, uh, on academics, and also on communities themselves. A lot of, sort of not much is, is often said about the impact that academic knowledge exchange activity can have on individual, individuals and uh, community groups. Um, I'll then sort of end by saying sort of a bit about the impacts of the high funding programmes on both academic culture to, to engage towards engagement and the capacity to engage by universities. And then just a few things, Anna's already mentioned a bit about challenges. So the last decade, we've seen almost a doubling of the income secured by the university sector from such activities to about uh, £2.5 billion pounds um, in 2010. And the major contribution, to, the major sort of source of this income actually comes from contract research and collaborative research with courses generating about almost sort of half a billion pounds. 
The recession has seen a slight slowing of this, uh, the, the growth of this type of income, particularly in relation to collaborative research and courses. And I think one thing to point out is the, uh, just sort of adding to Alan's point about the, the typical rhetoric of, rhetoric of all this debate, focusing on technology transfer and the commercialization of, of research, IP revenues is a very, very small part of the overall income generated by universities from such activities. So this rapid growth in knowledge exchange funding has been supported by a, a fairly substantial amount of government funding, uh, almost a billion pounds over the last 10 years, uh, allocated to support universities in uh, engaging with the economy and society through knowledge exchange activities. Now the aim of much of this funding is to correct what we might call market and system failures, um, thought to exist in the higher education sector, which is hindering the exploitation of, no of, of the knowledge from the the higher education base. I mean, for example, you know, insufficient or lack of support for academics to engage in the, in, in the process. Um, an adverse culture was thought to exist amongst academics, um, which is preventing the, uh, an increased amount of engagement with, uh, with external organisations. And that was really the aim of these programmes, was trying to help universities build up the capacity and capabilities to engage, as well as trying to change academic behaviour and academic culture and attitudes towards engaging with industry. It began in earnest in 1999 with the introduction of the Higher Education Reach Out to Business Community Fund, which was introduced alongside a range of other different uh, funds, most notably the University Challenge Fund, which was uh, targeted uh, proof of concept and um, early stage ventures and the Science Enterprise Challenge Fund, which is more about supporting entrepreneurship um, and, employ uh, and, and enterprise. Um, and that was, uh, all these different, frag almost like fragmented programs were consolidated, progressively consolidated into the Higher Education Innovation Fund and that was introduced in 1992 as the policy matured. And what we have now is a very flexible fund which is allocated to universities based on the formula, um, which universities can allocate according to their specific needs. Um, and uh, the next round is beginning in August of this year with um, universities deciding what to spend their money on at the moment. And that comes on to it. So what do universities spend their money on in terms of their high allocations um, alongside other investments, either from internal resources, from was the, uh, the regional development agencies, from the European funding? Um, and in addition to helping sort of fund... Uh, training schemes for both the, the support staff as well as academics, creating funds to help buy out academic time to help relieve the time constraint that I mentioned earlier. It's helped to develop a fairly comprehensive system of support infrastructure um, that's required to under, underpin the engagement process. Um, I think it's often a myth that um, policymakers sometimes suffer from, which uh, which sort of says that you know, academics can just engage in a lot of these types of activities on their own with absolutely no support whatsoever. Um, when we did some work in the US last year, a couple of years ago, we found that even you know, in some of the big universities which are you know, well-renowned for this type of activity, there's a fairly extensive system of support infrastructure underpinning it. So to try and combat this myth, we undertook an audit of the different types of infrastructure support functions and infrastructure that exists. I think we looked at about 20 or 30 different universities. What we found was a wide-ranging system of infrastructure covering a whole range of different um, activities of academics. Um, most most whole set of infrastructure aims to support the research exploitation process, um, not least you know, providing access points for, for, for companies, business development, technology, the much-talked-about technology transfer offices, consultant support, and importantly, contracts and legal, and that can sometimes be a, a, a particular area where bottlenecks can occur. Um, another set of infrastructure to do with helping skills and human capital development, 
the, there's a burgeoning of, of course, short courses and CPD activity amongst universities. This tends to be under, underpinned by offices and support structures to help this occur. Lifelong learning, work placements, and project experience. Social enterprise is another big activity that that's sort of, appears to be rapidly increasing at the moment. Again, uh, there seems to be support which is emerging to help, help this activity. And uh, the creation of academic business, academic public sector networks as well. Conferences like this one as well. Uh, there's, there's a whole, tends to be a whole supporting infrastructure underlying this. And the often overlooked one is the, the, um, the support that's often provided for public engagements, for community activity, including volunteering, widening participation, um, and increasingly involved in the public in research activities. What we also found when we looked at the different universities, well, there's no one-size-fits-all type of uh, infrastructure system. Um, universities invest in the, the type of system that meets their specific needs, and there doesn't, tend to, doesn't seem to be a model of best practice, um, which makes it harder to for the system to develop. In terms of, I just want to say a few more words on building what Alan said about impacts of, that, of knowledge exchange on users. Um, as he mentioned, I mean, in terms of um, uh, external organisations, engaging with the STEM subjects, as you mentioned, you know, it tends to be for support for product and process innovation, uh, skills development as well to some extent. With non-STEM subjects, it tends to be more about workforce management skills development, marketing, business model and strategy. There are benefits for academics in terms of the, for their research as well as their teaching. But we also find that there's a substantial number of academics, about almost half of the academics who responded to the surveys of academic, the surveys that we undertook, um, in, were motivated by furthering the university's outreach mission. And I think this is an area of, that's often overlooked in terms, of, in terms of an area of impacts. What impact do these types of activities have on communities, on individuals? Some research we did for the University of Essex, which is going to be published at the end of this month, as well as uh, some other research we've done for the University of York, has helped to show that these types of knowledge exchange activities with communities can help create a more informed public, a, a public that has a greater sort of understanding of the issues it's facing, a public that's better sort of able to meet the challenges it's facing. Um, through lifelong learning and various other types of activities, it helps improve employability, uh, employability the capabilities of individuals and skills of individuals. Um, through its, you know, its work with schools, it can help increase the educational aspirations of children. Um, and there tends also to be, sort of, uh, academics believe they sort of help co contribute to social cohesion and re regeneration of local communities. So I think there's a fairly broad range, as I think we've been trying to say in this, in this panel, a diverse range of impacts that need to be, must be captured by, um, sort of by uh, any kind of uh, metrification. And certainly Hefke is interested in not only the, the harder impacts on businesses, but also public sector as well as communities. So in terms of the impacts of government policy, we did undertake a fairly extensive amount of research, including surveys of academics, surveys of uh, external organisations. We interviewed about 130 different people, um, uh, senior managers of universities, senior academics, and a fairly extensive data on that as well. To, uh, all the evidence seems to point to that the government, had, um, government support had played a fairly significant role in helping HIs build the capacity and capability to engage. There was all the different analysis we did pointed to um, significant gr gross additionality, which the Treasury um, sort of need, needs heavily to demonstrate in terms of justifying the future of the funding. And we had a, a presumption um, of based on some, some more brainstorming, that there was significant net additionality there too. And we spoke to the senior managers and senior academics in the universities, the 30 universities we, spoke, we, we, uh, we looked at. 
it gave something like an indication of the types of, 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 sort of you know, why this was the case. The argument was that the scale of knowledge exchange was greater than, than it would otherwise be. It was critical for developing certain types of infrastructure, helped them leverage other types of funding, for example, by demonstrating the benefits of projects to later stage funders. And it helped, up, helped back, to back up the strategic campaigns of parts of the leadership with the actual resources that were required to invest uh, to, to, to um, achieve the outcomes. In terms of culture and attitudes, it's helped drive high funding has been part of a, a, wide, a, a number of different drivers to help increase the support for knowledge exchange, both at the leadership level as well as amongst academics. But culture and, uh, culture and attitudes amongst academics are not fully, uh, yet fully supported, supportive of this type of activity, with most still motivated by the benefits they can have to, this type of activity can have to their research and teaching. And there's a strong view came out from our sur uh, surveys of academics that it cannot come at the expense of academic freedom and of research quality, which are very much seen as the competitive position of universities. So just to end, I suppose, um, the, you know, can, can universities do more? Is there more to be done in terms of this type of, this type of uh, support? Well, about a third of academics that respond to the survey still don't, would be interested in getting involved, but don't feel knowledge about the issues of doing so. So it seems to suggest there is still a cohort which, where further support is necessary. Now, Alan mentioned a, a lot about the constraints um, facing academics in actually uh, engaging with the, um, the economy and society. I think the one that I'd like to point out is the difficulty in identifying partners. This seems to come up both when you speak to academics as well as when you speak to firms, is how do you actually search for the right person uh, to get engaged with? Um, and I think that seems to be one, one big area of further research. Um, and I think I'll just end by saying that this is clearly a, a very important area for, for, for government, this uh, supporting knowledge exchange and uh, impact, generating greater impacts from universities on the economy and society. It's one of the few areas of government spending that's been protected, at least in cash terms. But the emphasis shifted away from rewarding all universities, giving money to all universities, universities to rewarding be the better performance based on, at the moment, that their, their performance metric is knowledge exchange income. Um, that's had a result of a number of universities losing all their funding and a, part of, a, a, a portion of universities losing part of their funding. So I think some of the big questions at the moment is, you know, what will these universities who've lost some or all of their funding do? Um, and, you know, will they sort of seek efficiency savings? Will they cease any kind of formal support for this type of activity? Will they collaborate more? And what impact will this have on the academics who are seeking to achieve impact of their research and teaching? So I think I'll end on that point. And Thanks very much. Okay, so we've got about uh, 18 minutes for questions. There should be some mics coming around. Jane, is that right? So put your hand up. I'm going to take three or four at a time. Uh, you can address them to the panel at large or to any individual member. So. No questions. Yes, this one, at the back. Can you just say who you are when you ask? Sure, I think I'm being very brave. My name's Claire Donovan from Brunel University. Um, I'm quite interested in sort of comments that have been made about metrics being preferred on the one hand and case studies um, being preferred on the other. And I'd be interested to hear um, views about um, the possibility that really they both need each other. Um, I'm sure 
we appreciate that good narratives really need good qualitative and quantitative evidence. And on the other hand, good metrics always need to be presented within the context of a narrative as well. So I think we need both. Um, we wouldn't want case studies with no evidence whatsoever, and I don't think we'd want a metrics-only system, um, which is what happened in Australia, which moved from... Um, looking to implement case studies, but at the moment, um, because of objections to case studies, that shifted only to plant breeders' rights, commercialisation income and patents, and I'm sure we don't want that world. <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Yeah. <laughs> Lydia Lewis, University of Leicester. Um, I was just wondering if the panel... Uh, could com comment on the sort of direction of the knowledge exchange schemes within the SRC at the moment, um, which have just been restructured, uh, haven't they? Um, particularly this issue which has come up in a couple of the presentations about who the knowledge exchange is with. Uh, looking at uh, the knowledge exchange opportunities recently myself, since the, they've been sort of re-announced, re uh, I noticed that there's a big emphasis on partnership with the business sector actually to the point where it explicitly says that applications with uh, business will be prioritised uh, above those with the third sector or the public sector as long as they um, uh, have adequate quality and then obviously then making the link to the delivery plan as well which very much plays up this issue of meeting the needs of, of business. Um, I wasn't sure how new that was actually whether that was there before, but I don't remember seeing it before, and I just wondered whether the panel could comment on that uh, for us. Let's take one more, down the front here. Um, I'm Stephen Curry from Imperial College. I'm an active uh, researcher in the STEM area. Um, I'd always... Thank <laughs> 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 you, pardon. Uh, I'd always, um, I still am, very suspicious of the uh, impact forecasts that uh, scientists, etc., are expected to put in to grant applications at the minute, and the retrospective looking at impact in, in the REF uh, framework always seemed a bit more sensible to me, but having heard Alan Hughes' explanation of the difficulties that attend that process, and of how do you pick apart the contributions of any given research or even any given university, uh, I have to say I'm a bit more pessimistic about using it as a system to judge universities. I think use it as a system to try and evaluate government investment in science spending is probably good in a general sense, but not, not really in a particular sense. I'd be interested in comments. Yeah, I, in any grant I put in, I always put change the world as part of my expected impact. But anyway. <laughs> uh, Patrick, you want to lead off? Yeah, well, maybe I could take the point about metrics and case studies. Are they complementary? And I agree, in, a, in an ideal world, they, they would be. Well, I probably am the only person here who's looked through every single REF pilot case study published by uh, Hefke, and uh, I looked to see how many of them had any statistics or a table or a chart or any kind of metric-type-based information, and the answer across all disciplines was not. So it was just narrative only and I do think that that's a bad thing I mean you know uh, I, I, I think it's very important that, that Hefke should actually take its auditability thing quite seriously and, and you know if, if somebody for example suppose somebody has 
uh, I don't know, 10 meetings with civil servants about the design of the NHS reform bill. But thanks to Andrew Lansley, none of that is taken any notice of and it plows on to destruction anyway. Well, I mean, the, the, the fact that they've undertaken the activity but it hasn't had an impact is not down to them. The, the, it, the extended impact that Hefke is looking for is, is, is something else. So I think it would be very, very useful if indeed people did follow Alan's point and, and that they, they majored on the kind of metrics or at least on the interactions and the occasions of influence and then they built up a story and, and so on. But I rather fear that what will happen is that uh, university research committees and, and elites, when they're going through the case studies, will say, okay, you did a lot of impact work, but you didn't actually win out on this one, so we're going to delete that case study. And a rather biased and selective picture will come out. And that's why um, I, I think a lot of the things are individual, you know, senior people having an influence. Um, now, sometimes the senior people having an influence is because of the merit of their work. Sometimes it's just down to luck or, you know, the combination of thousands of other forces influencing whether anything changed in the organization or not. Um, so, for example, if you're dealing with a business, you could be dealing with one particular executive, then suddenly that executive is reorganized and your project doesn't happen. But does that prove that the project was a lousy project? Well, of course it doesn't. Um, so I think it would be great if narratives embodied metrics, uh, and that would be one way forward, and one way, easy way, that Hefke could improve the process is to encourage people to say, well, we recognize that when something happens, it usually comes out of a very large ground base of interactions that are going on, and, and let's chart those interactions and, and so on. So I agree that could be great, and I also agree that metrics on their own don't really feed through into uh, into a full story, and that narratives, I agree with Alan, that narratives are very useful. But if we could ground the narratives on really things that are in the public domain, things that can be checked, or things that can be established with a high level of accuracy, and, and so we don't get you know, fairy tales of influence, which is sadly what I've rather expected that we will get. Um, well, uh, on the first question about me metrics and cases, I mean, I'm perhaps the only other person in the room has read all the, uh, oh, right. the impact <laughs> cases. Many of them do actually have quite a lot of numbers in them. And I think that if you, if you look in particular at the medical cases, they're actually rather full of, full of numbers about treatments and cure rates and so on and so forth. The problem is that uh, there's great variability across disciplines in how you might choose to demonstrate impact. Um, and I'd certainly echo the um, remarks that Patrick's has made that you, you need to be able where you can actually demonstrate um, the root of impact and what the impact was with references. So, for instance, again, many of them have examples of where a piece of evidence is used in relation to a particular piece of policy. But it, it is a very exacting thing um, to do, but I think it's a very worthwhile thing to do. And why I think it's worthwhile is to reflect on why we've got to the position that we are, and that is because there's massive unhappiness about the reliance on the medication based purely on citation indices. That there's great concern about the usefulness of this because of the underlying problems about uh, the Matthew principle and uh, certain journals become reified because they have high citation ratings and they themselves are linked to skewness 
in terms of the underlying article. So there's work done in social sciences, for instance, which I'm sure you're well aware of, where Andrew Oswald showed that it was just as useful in terms of citation to publish in a so-called second-rate journal than to be um, uh, an average um, article in a so-called top-rate journal. And because of the volume of um, work that's required in REF, I think despite the statements that everybody reads everything, every committee I've been on in relation to this boils down to saying, oh, where are the articles in the Administrative Science Quarterly or whatever it happens to be? So that's why I think um, some emphasis on discussions of other pathways are very important. Um, and the other way of thinking about it uh, in terms of why it's one in ten is because this is really a portfolio approach. It's saying, okay, here's a university. It has thousands of academics. Um, choose some samples um, which demonstrate what the institute as a whole is. That doesn't mean to say everybody has to be doing it, but that the institution you know, should be able to, to propose some cases. Now, the, the difficulty that I pointed out, and uh, which I think is a serious difficulty, is um, this one of complementary investments. And a real challenge in presenting these impacts is the need to be honest about who else was working in the area, what contribution the whole thing made. Now, the, the guidelines say you, you should feel free to do that, but that's going to need some very strong reinforcement centrally to say you won't be penalised if you point out that it wasn't only you, it was, it was somebody else. Um, and there will be an opportunity, there's going to be feedback, and no doubt uh, David will talk about this more later on today, that the panels are beginning to issue guidelines about what, what they'll expect in the cases, so there, there's actually room to play for, and uh, you know, universities can feed back, as I understand it, between the guidance that's going to come out and the autumn, uh, to say, well, look, uh, let's really think through this seriously. Should we place more emphasis on achieving the pathways rather than the final impacts? Yeah. And that seems to be a very important and useful thing um, to say. But uh, it's always possible to point out the major difficulties, where actually I think the major benefits. And if, if you look at research on innovation, for instance, um, much more emphasis in studying the impact of innovation in the academic literature focuses on narratives and case studies um, because of this problem. In relation to um, the ESRC knowledge exchange schemes, I think this is real politique. I mean, um, you know, in, a, in an era of, of cuts, um, they want to be able, as the research council generally, to be able to establish a link with wealth creation. And I think that's why businesses is being favoured in this. And I think there probably is some change there. And uh, Astrid Wissenberg from ESRC is in the final session, so I think you should put your question directly to her. And then uh, I agree completely with the point about impact forecasts and uh, impact retrospect. It seems to me the most pointless exercise to do impact forecasts. I mean, if I knew what the impact of my research was, I'd have known what the outcome was before I started doing it. It wouldn't have been worthwhile attempting. Thomas. <laughs> I think I echo basically everything that Adam and Patrick have said. I mean, I think just the um, building on the, ES, the point about the ESRC and what the ESRC are doing, I think Hefke's latest round of high funding, which is a more general fund to support knowledge exchange activity, the guideline, guidance has come out for universities in terms of how they, how they can invest their, their funding. And it does emphasise quite strongly it's not just about business engagement, it's about engaging with the public sector as well as the third sector, as well as community activities. And I think it remains to be seen how universities actually um, invest their, their, um, their high funds, which will come out this autumn. Um, and that's, yeah. I wanted to ask a question back to Alan, which is my, my worry about the case studies um, approach to assessing impact is, is error, and two forms of error. One error where a department has several people who they think are impact, and they've just got to choose 
a subgroup of these to put in, and they may just make the wrong decision, and then they're evaluated afterwards. And one of the people they put in isn't thought of as by the panel as very good on impact criteria, whereas had they put in one of the others, they might have come up better. So that's one potential source of error, which, which you know, you, it, by virtue of the fact and by potentially being in a position in the department here at LSE and having to make that choice, I, I really am worried about. The second uh, for, uh, possible error is comparing two different departments. One where, well, they, let's say two different departments have both put in two people, right, relatively small departments. One of the departments has one very, very high impact person and one very, very low impact person. And the other department has just two similarly sort of medium impact, but could have put in any of that group of people. Right? You don't know. Actually, the overall impact could well have been more for that second department than it could have been for that first department, but probably that first department is going to get evaluated as having a higher impact. So that's just an error from the fact that this is a case study-based metric where we've got to kind of choose a subset of people that gets put in. Well, can I respond to that? Yep. I mean, I think, it's, first of all, it's always, it's always worthwhile bearing in mind if you're comparing two things, which is citation metrics versus something else, to actually compare them both. So it undoubtedly will be true that um, when universities make strategic decisions about which cases to choose, they'll make judgments about it's, a, you know, it's like the beauty contest in the news of the world. You know, you're not guessing what's the best. You're guessing what you think the panel will think right. is the best. So, and that's also true for the citation industry. So um, you know, people in departments say, okay, you ask individuals what they're best for articles. And they say what they are. And the panel might say, well, we think they're very interesting too. But actually, they don't have the profile we require at institutional level. So all the, these decisions are being made. So who are damaged by, by these errors? Well. Well, that's the first form of error. What about the second form of error, which is the fact that you're only looking at a subsample of... But that's, but that's the argument for portfolio selection. I mean, that's what we're saying. I mean, you know, even in terms of citation indices, <coughs> there are big strategic decisions taken about how many people you will enter. <coughs> okay. So I think these issues are quite common. Quite com Next round. Question over here. <coughs> Just following on from your last worry about how do you choose the best selection of case studies. Another area that we have to worry about is the overall UOA statement which is going to accompany the, the selection of case studies and that's something we don't know the balance of the marks between the case studies and the UOA statement but I think um, departments have got to show not only that they've got a few people working on it on, on impact and producing impact, but we've got to show as universities how we're supporting KE, have we got structures in place, have we got people in place, and that's a whole other area of uh, concern. Thank you. Question down here in the middle. actually a comment on your last question, Judy Sebi, University of Sussex. I, I'm sure I'm not the only sub-panel member in the room, there are probably lots, and I'm, I'm hoping that they'll come to my rescue here and confirm my view. I think your question was, um, shows a problem which is a, a, um, a general misunderstanding. The impact uh, case studies are not people-based in that sense. They are sets, they're blocks of research, if you like. Um, they could be people-based, but there's no reason why they should be. And I think the, some of the case studies illustrated that uh, in the pilot quite well. So I would, I would hope that we can move away from that notion that it's individuals being judged, particularly since 
in the room there are quite a lot of um, universities uh, that are developing their research intensivity and uh, in those universities it might be quite important to describe people's work in the impact case studies who are not actually people that are submitted. A final question. Uh, David from Durham University. I'd like to ask about national and international impact. In our academic work, we seek to have an impact at the highest level internationally in our fields. Is non-academic impact only UK? If it's international, how do we measure it and how do we distinguish between them? Right, it's obviously a key issue for those that work on non-UK parts of the world. Thank you for that question. All right, 30 seconds each. I think you should ask, the, uh, ask Hefke later on today. <laughs> Hefke has just issued a consultation paper, which I haven't had time to read, on the treatment of international research. But, I mean, generally I would say that uh, the whole way the case study thing is set up, it's going to heavily penalise people who influence, you know, a wide spectrum of things because you're not going to be able to, you know, show that activities or outcomes, etc., have changed. So, you know, I think most universities actually will end up going for the safer route, which is to pick high-impact stuff with a narrow applicability and, and things that you can uh, establish. So, so if you're dealing with a local authority or a regional body, it's easier to establish that your distinctive work had some particular impact on them. If you're dealing with the European Union or the UN, you know, good luck. <laughs> That, yes. Of course, mm. of course. Well, it exactly reminds me to thank. I'm conscious of time, and we've got another panel starting well, immediately. So, oh, Alan, make well, one. Why should it be any less valuable mm. to demonstrate a very powerful impact on your local community? I mean, mm. that, that's no, the no, point. There's no, there's no, there's he wasn't making a pejorative it. judgment. Oh, I'm not making a strategic judgment. I'm not saying it's less useful in any way. I'm just saying that it will be much easier to demonstrate, and it will be harder to demonstrate wider impact stuff. Really. Yes, well, you might be able to show a very precise linkage with some overseas uh, body, a well, cultural event or something of that kind. If you look at the, hit, the, the report produced by the Arts and Humanities Research Council two weeks ago based on this data, and you look at the case studies um, that are in that, you'll find all, all kinds of uh, impacts that I hope evidence that would be accepted. Okay, thank you very much.
charge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm Stephen Curry. I'm Paul Manners. Paul Metzman. Yeah. I'm not down for this session right yeah. now. I was, I was doing a later one. Oh, right. 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 You are on the web link. Yeah. Okay, uh, welcome uh, to the second session uh, on innovative methods for impact and also uh, engagement of uh, academia uh, with society at large. My name is Bart Kamarts, I'm senior lecturer at the Media and Communication Department here at the LSC. Uh, we have five speakers for you. Charlie Beckett, Stephen Curry, Martin Lawrence, Mike Peel, and Paul Manners. You will find their bios in your uh, program, so I'll not uh, waste any time uh, on that for the moment. Uh, I'm going to give each of the speakers uh, five minutes, uh, after which we can open up uh, for uh, questions, comments, and discussion. Uh, Charlie Beckett. So they're already out, so just forward it. Lovely, beautiful, thank you. Um, hi everybody, um, I should say uh, I'm celebrating uh, five years uh, since I joined uh, the LSE, uh, this, this week in fact, um, and last week we had a, uh, an annual conference in 
this theatre and indeed with another theatre on, on Friday where we had about 400 people like this throughout a whole day um, fantastic event, 40 speakers and 95% of the people were from outside the LSE, they were journalists uh, policy makers and so on um, so what I'm going to take the liberty of is talking about myself and Polis uh, uh, in a sense reviewing what we've done over the last five years in terms of achieving uh, impact. Um, uh, these are some sort of crude estimates but uh, in the last uh, year, uh, 2009-10, we put on about 30 events uh, we had an estimated total audience of about 3,500 people. I gave about 16 public speeches. My Twitter account has uh, 4,000 followers. My blog got about 100,000 unique views over the year. The website probably got double that. We published a couple of major reports, and we had weekly, pretty much weekly coverage uh, in newspapers or international broadcast media. Um, I also we, uh, teach an option, uh, I te uh, we run a summer school, uh, and uh, we provided about 40 internships over the year. So we've achieved all that uh, generation of, of uh, impact, uh, basically uh, on my salary and uh, about 50 grand per year, which we've uh, raised entirely ourselves. Um, so I think in the last five years this has become an extraordinarily impactful forum polis. Um, it is pretty much the most successful space for uh, media, the media industry, certainly the journalism industry, to talk about uh, the big issues uh, in public in relationship with academics. How have we achieved it? Um, firstly through partnership, and I should warn you, the slides are incredibly fact-free, they're just to give you something else to look at apart from me, um, but this one is more informative in the sense this is just a tiny selection of the kind of people that we partnered over that last five years. I'm given structural support uh, by the LSE, I work, but I work with a range of media partners, as you can see, from BBC to, to, to Vodafone, and they either provide uh, speakers or sponsorship or help in kind. Um, my research department, if you like, is of course the media department at the LSE. Um, we do commission some special staff, uh, some, I do some research as well, uh, and again we work with those partners to, to, to do research. Um, my interns, the students in other words, are part of that research process. Uh, so uh, Polis has its own uh, identity, but uh, is very much a partnership internally in the LSE, not just in my department, but the government department and beyond, uh, but as importantly, everything we do is partnered externally. The other reason, I think, for our success is our relative independence, in the sense that POLIS isn't just an LSE institute, it's more of a kind of portal or forum, visual pun, uh, where the different worlds meet. Um, POLIS is, as I said, within the media department, but while I'm part of the management structure of that uh, department, I've been able to maintain the independence of POLIS, and that's really, really important, because especially for journalists, uh, they'd run a mile if they thought that it was a purely uh, academic venture. And also it's important uh, that the independence, so we don't look like we're captured by a particular sector or point of view. Um, how do we do that? Partly I've got an office in a different bit of the building from my department. Um, perhaps more importantly, I'm a journalist. 
uh, by career, not, not an academic, and I spend most of my time actually with people outside uh, of my department, outside of the university, and I am telling those people about the research in my department, and in turn, uh, I bring their ideas and contacts uh, inwards to fertilise and connect uh, with the department's work. Uh, the other reason for success, um, entrepreneurship. Um, we have experimented with a variety of partnerships and different structures for events and research. Uh, I have virtually no seed capital to invest in real entrepreneurship, but I'm constantly doing deals inside and outside the LSE to find bits of money or helping kind to make things happen. The important thing about that is that ducking and diving isn't really a business model, um, but it's a necessity, but it does help maintain my independence, and secondly, it really does foster connections and reaching out, and it prevents complacency or dependency. And in turn, that leads on to the next uh, key factor, which is risk-taking. Uh, when I came to the LSE, I was told there was a way of doing things. I was familiar with this concept because broadcast journalism, where I came from, is also stuffed uh, full of uh, process and ways of doing things. But I soon discovered the LSE is actually a very entrepreneurial place where you can take risks, but never, of course, with your reputation or your standards, just the way that you do things. Um, and risk was built in because I was only on a two-year contract with a very limited budget. And so we've, we've ex experimented with any number of different topics and style of events in an effort to see what works and what kind of things get traction. And so the example here is uh, within the first month of being here, I agreed to put on this uh, major conference on media uh, and development. And uh, it was a massive success, hundreds of people, lots of people flown in from around the world uh, to speak and to attend. And it all happened uh, with a group of about six sponsors who put in bugger all money, frankly, um, and not much more help. So it was done uh, very rapidly uh, and on a very limited budget. And it could have failed, but in fact it worked. And it's now a very important stream in our work on media and development and humanitarian communications. And indeed, has become much more important in the department as a whole. So that one worked, but I'm not going to tell you about the ones that didn't. Uh, the other important point is uh, networking, I and mean, obviously this is appropriate because it's, it's in a way the subject of polis as well as the way that we achieve impact. Um, but this is very much, and this is very much though about uh, an offline presence at conferences, workshops, going into newsrooms, going into pubs, as well as an online presence. Uh, the online presence, which as you can see, takes full advantage of Twitter, blogs, etc., to broadcast. But also, and I think this is really, really important. Uh, it's networking, so it's also about inviting reaction and keep getting people to get in touch uh, with us and to feed back to us uh, in a much more sort of interconnected, uh, to, to a variety of interconnected and specialist networks. Um, so I think that the Polis Network is about an openness that cultivates engagement, trust and respect uh, for the research that flows through those networks from Polis. My academic colleagues already have outstanding academic reputation, that's not the problem. The task at Polis uh, is to gather attention for what they do. Um, so that's the Polis impact story. When I first arrived at LSE, um, no one could work out how it fitted in. Um, we couldn't work out to call it an institute or a unit or a centre. Um, they couldn't work out what job description I, I, I should have either. 
Um, and I'm very grateful to the leadership shown by Robin Mansell and now Sonia Livingstone, who actually made it happen, and the energy, enthusiasm, and buy-in uh, from my colleagues, who may have been bemused uh, to start with. Uh, somebody referred to me as, oh, you're that journalist that works here now. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, but never hostility. Uh, now, I would argue just about everyone in that department is, is involved, and I think they're very pleased that it's here. Indeed, every department in the LSE that I've had contact with says that they want <coughs> their own kind of polis. And I think, therefore, that if you want to have impact, you have to get a think tank. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie. I may invite uh, Professor Stephen Curry. Uh, good morning, my name is Stephen Curry. I'll just pause for a second while the cognoscenti absorb the very clever font joke that I have on my first slide. Before that turns to anger at their realisation that I've used the font Comic Sans. Uh, I think I'm here uh, initially because of uh, boxes like this that I used to see on grant applications. I'm a working scientist. I depend on the research councils a lot of money and they used to ask about this sort of stuff uh, when I was trying to get on with the busy business of actually doing science. And like many working scientists, I used to not take this very seriously. Uh, it was a sort of add-on. Uh, I got the message from the research councils that actually they didn't take it very seriously because they never really put a lot of money behind it. And I used to sort of write down, oh, I'll go and talk to a couple of schools, and if there's a sort of science day at the university, I'll probably <coughs> help out with that. I didn't really think about it much more than that. But uh, about sort of 2007, 2008, I gradually became aware of the scientific blogosphere and it did strike me that uh, starting a scientific blog might be a good way to fulfill this duty. I did have a slightly guilty conscience that I wasn't really fulfilling my duty to the taxpayer by uh, engaging more actively with the public about the science that, that I did using their money. So um, I hummed and had quite a bit. Uh, blogging has a mixed reputation, shall we say. Uh, among uh, many people. It's seen in academic circles often still is a bit as a sort of frivolous uh, waste of time. Um, there were also concerns I had about, uh, you know, what would I write about? Would I be able to s sustain it? Uh, and, but uh, I sort of got in involved initially just commenting on other people's blogs and then eventually decided to uh, take the plunge myself, which I did in 2008 while laying my cards very clearly on the table. I found that once you sort of start and take the plunge and sort of have a little bit of courage in order to sort of put yourself out there in the public domain, um, you, it actually then becomes quite difficult to shut you up. So um, when people like Simon Jenkins uh, get out their quill and start to write on subjects of which they know very little, among them including science, uh, I felt motivated and actually uh, had enough sort of self-confidence with my colleague Bill Hannage at Imperial to sort of write a rebuttal. And um, I don't know how much impact um, saying in public, oh no, we're not, uh, has, but it, it certainly felt good. And um, I have noticed that his scientific output has dropped in the meantime, but uh, I'll leave it others to judge on the particular impact of that. <laughs> If you are going to speak out and get into blogging, it does help, actually, if you can write. Um, I, I didn't think, actually, that I could write. I've you know, 20 odd years as an academic. I've written lots of papers, but you know, we know, all know the dry style that academic papers are written in. But I was kind of surprised and relatively pleased to discover that you know, I did have a certain way with words. I don't want to blow my own trumpet, but uh, so the, some of the blog posts that I've written have been included in 
uh, internationally curated collections of the best science blogging for the last uh, three years. So that kind of helps boost your self-confidence. Blogging is very much about a networking thing, and although there are an awful lot of very nasty people out there in the blogosphere, um, an awful lot of other people are actually quite nice, and you do get a lot of positive feedback um, from it, not just on your writing, but on the issues that you talk about. So that can lead to other uh, opportunities. And although also some people like to put about the rumour, you know, journalists such as Andrew Marr, I don't know why the bloggers put his nose so out of joint, I don't know what they did, but uh, he seems to think that bloggers are mostly spotty, girlfriendless young men who sit in their pyjamas banging away at their keyboards. Uh, but in actual fact, in actual fact, I find the opposite is true, and that banging away at my keyboard has actually taken me uh, out of my office and actually out into the streets. And it was through blogging and the networking. I got uh, sort of caught up in the libel reform campaign uh, initiated, I think, sparked in part by the case involving Simon Singh, who was sued by the British Chiropractic Association for something that he wrote in The Guardian that now turns out to be true. And um, uh, that sort of uh, getting involved in that campaign, I wrote blogs about it. I actually went along to the High Court a couple of times. Turns out you can go in free. Who knew? So, and it's actually uh, very good entertainment, but it also is a way of making you think a bit more about many of the diverse issues. And I think this came out in some of the comments in the first panel. You know, there are many varied ways in which scientists can get involved uh, in the wider society. And writing about your research is one way, but actually libel reform is a very important method because it's often used by many companies to silence critics and it's a particular problem in the, in the area of public health. And actually Simon Singh in this picture will be presenting uh, evidence to the Select Committee in Parliament later this afternoon who are considering draft legislation which uh, has come about in the new administration, I think in no small part as Alan Rusbridger noted, to the activities of uh, scientists who were up in arms about this issue. Another variation, it's important to talk to the, the next generation of uh, citizens, some of them who will become scientists, but many of them will just become citizens who are having to grapple with an increasingly technological world. I had talked about going into schools. I've done a little bit of that, but mostly just in my kids' schools. Uh, but this is a fantastic sort of online opportunity to talk directly to uh, school students around the country. It's all done online. It's a sort of two-week competition modelled on a popular TV series. Uh, it's not quite as brutal as the uh, television variant, uh, but it is very good because it places all the power in the hands of the children who get to vote for their favourite scientists, judging how well they answer any and every question that the children are allowed to put to us. So I spent an intensive two weeks, actually this time last year, uh, doing this and was uh, lucky enough to emerge victorious. <laughs> the getting out into the world and thinking about uh, impacts and more, uh, of course we had a change of administration last year and again sort of through contacts picked up uh, in the sort of blogosphere with The Guardian and that. Uh, when Vince Cable made an absolutely atrocious speech about the so-called lack of excellence in British science, um, I co-wrote a piece with Evan Harris, who was an MP at the time. Unfortunately, he's no longer an MP, but we'll see if we can remedy that. Uh, uh, sort of castigating him. And uh, the same speech uh, also motivated a colleague of mine, Dr. Jenny Rowan, to sort of kick-start the Science is Vital campaign. 
and around her nucleated a very small group of people who really pushed the campaign. We had 42 days to fight off the threat of cuts. We mobilized celebrities. We mobilized a petition of 35,000 signatures, presented a petition to uh, 10 Downing Street at FaceTime with David Willits uh, to talk about it. We had a noisy demonstration right outside the Treasury offices, which I know for a fact was uh, overheard by Danny Alexander, the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And um, now I'm not going to claim that the campaign um, was solely responsible for the relatively beneficial settlement that we got at the Comprehensive Spending Review. There were many other groups uh, very vocal, both publicly and privately. But what was great about this was the way in which we could use blogging and Twitter and Facebook to mobilize a truly grassroots um, reaction to what was uh, then a very serious situation. The situation is still serious, but I think it's not as bad as it might otherwise have been. And that's how it, in the, in the streets, what about my research? Does blogging actually help my research? I'm not entirely sure about that. I think the main benefit I've got is actually the contact I've had with the public through it. And uh, particularly, actually, I felt this during talking to the kids in the online competition, exposure to their, their freshness and their optimism, their idealism, and what they really wanted scientists and felt that scientists ought to be able to do to you know, make the world a better place was really terribly refreshing for a sort of jaded uh, old cynic like me. And that kind of helps me to sort of uh, think a bit more deeply about the particular science that I do and whether that's actually you know, scientifically going to impact uh, the, the problems that you know, our society faces. Uh, it also impacts uh, on my teaching. Um, I spoke up at a staff meeting recently, uh, sort of arguing that on our biology and biochemistry degree programs, we needed to insist upon A-level maths among our entering students. Uh, many of my staff colleagues disagreed. I took the matter to the blogosphere and wrote a blog post about it. Uh, I got massive response. Turns out everybody's got an opinion on maths. Uh, but it was a very interesting and actually constructive discussion, and it, it sort of changed my view on the subject. I've been invited to write an article from the Times Higher Education uh, sort of enlarging on this, so I've had an opportunity to contribute to a national debate, and I think it probably played no small part in my recent appointment as Director of Undergraduate Studies in my department, where I think I will be uh, required to put my money where my <laughs> mouth is. Okay, so uh, I'm back at my grant application form. Uh, you're no longer asking directly for um, public engagement. We have to fill in some information on pathways to impact. The last time I did this, uh, I had little trouble actually finding things to say. I, I didn't hold back about the blogging that I do, about my involvement in science as vital. I kind of hope that will actually stir at least a bit of sympathy among the peer reviewers who will look at it. But um, I won't know the final outcome until the end of this month. I will leave you just with a few questions that I won't uh, go into any detail about, but perhaps there are points we can come back to in the discussion. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, can I invite Martin Lawrence? Well, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got a pay raise, this is fun. <laughs> Do you want me to go? Yeah. Please. Uh, that was a nice surprise. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I work at a centre for public engagement, um, which was set up about four years ago. And um, I suppose I'm, I'm an optimist about the REF, and I'm an optimist about impact, because I feel it's a way in which some really exciting academic practice can actually be properly valued. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about why I'm optimistic, um, and then you can shoot me down afterwards. And the thing I'm going to 
talk about is a particular REF case study which is accessible on the Hefke site about the conservation of bumblebees, describing some work that was done to engage with the public. So what is public engagement? Um, it's always helpful to define your terms. I, th I think from our point of view, it describes the ways in which the world of university research can connect with a whole host of publics outside that, that university, and it can have different purposes. The first purpose is often an informing purpose where you actually want to let people know about the work that's going on um, so there's a very much a, a kind of communication ed edge to public engagement but that on its own is not enough I think there's also a very exciting opportunity through public engagement to actually listen um, and to set up activities which are very much about consulting with and listening to what the public thinks so whether that's advisory groups and panels or whether that's sort of more deliberative engagement where you're putting new areas of research in front of representative groups of the public and finding out what they think, a really rich opportunity for you to learn. And then finally, collaborating actually. There's lots of really exciting examples where researchers work with members of the public to do things, whether that's citizen science or collaborative research projects, etc. So those purposes, I think it's just really clear to be, it's really important to be clear about why you're engaging with the public. And I think often all of those three purposes will intertwine in one project. So going to the Bumblebee project, this involved a, a host of activity. There was some brilliant media work which led to a front page on The Independent, a whole host of articles in the web, on the web, television, etc. Uh, this project called Bee Watch, which was citizen science, where over 4,000 members of the public contributed to a very uh, sort of important and well-focused uh, survey into bumblebee distribution. But this is the absolute kind of fundamental point around the ref. All of that is fine, but if there isn't a link back to the underpinning research, then it isn't the kind of public engagement that the ref is interested in. And I think this case study was exemplary in being absolutely clear about what its research had revealed that it then wanted to engage the public with. So what they'd discovered was some particularly interesting new knowledge into bumblebee foraging, their nesting behaviours, their distributions, etc. And it was on the basis of those insights, which they wanted to extend further and communicate more widely, that they then built their public engagement activities. The next thing that is always important, I think, in terms of thinking about public engagement and thinking about how to talk about it, is to think about who are you engaging with and why. And again, this project, uh, the Bumblebee project, in terms of that map, you've got at the top sort of um, right-hand corner of the screen the public. You've got the community and third sector moving around clockwise. You've got the business community, the policy community, the public sector, and the international community. There are a whole host of different people you could engage with. This project was really thoughtful about how it engaged, in the case of the public, very much with communities of interest, gardeners in particular, but also people with an existing interest in nature. But they also engaged with the community sector and the third sector through working with conservation charities, they partnered with business community, building a partnership with um, Wyvel Garden Centre to distribute wild flower seeds, and they had a really sustained sort of pu policy engagement as well to look at the kind of underpinning environmental legislation that could help bumblebees survive. So it was a really well thought through project. 
What they then did is this magic ingredient of reach and significance. So with reach, it's very much thinking about how widely felt was the project. Um, and they were able, in the case study, to talk about how many people were actually involved. They were able to talk a little bit, a bit about how diverse and varied were the audiences that were reached. They were able to talk about the media coverage that built on the hands-on activities, etc. And then in terms of significance, they were able to talk about why the research that they'd done was of such public interest and gave a very clear rationale for that. They also were able to build in a certain amount of evaluation data and feedback. And they were able to give good evidence of third-party involvement. Other people got very actively involved in this. And it led to some really interesting sustained outcomes, setting up of a charity which now employs six members of staff. So it was a really interesting set of, of quite, you know, there were metrics, there were numbers that sort of backed up the story. But last of all, story, I think, narrative is really, really important, and that was discussed earlier. But I think the best case studies from the REF are able to tell a story in which the links in the narrative are really clearly made. So starting with, at the top, why was the public engaged? What was the rationale? What was the purpose for what they were doing? The next point, really thinking about who were you targeting with that work? Who were the audiences that you wanted to work with and why? And then how did, you you know, how did you tailor the activities to that audience or to that public? Thinking about the timing of it, was it done early in the research process in order to inform the research? Was it then returned to? And what kind of sustainable work went on beyond the period of the first or second contact with the public? That's a really interesting question. And then obviously the how, actually being able to articulate what was done and how that was appropriate to the purpose and to the audience. And then nested in the middle of that, some really good, compelling examples of who, how many, in what way were they actually <coughs> impacted by. What a horrible phrase. But how did they benefit from that particular project? So I, I would urge you to look at the conservation of bumblebees as, as a really interesting example of how one can make the ref allow good quality research and good academic practice to be valued. So that's my contribution. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> thinking of leaving. Thank you very much. Afternoon, everyone. Thank you for the, uh, the invitation to the Lions, Lions Den. There was, uh, there's a scene in Alice in Wonderland I was just thinking on the train on the way down where uh, Alice meets the Cheshire cat and she asks him which direction she should go and the cat says, well, rather depends uh, where you want to end up actually and she says, well, I don't seem to mind where I go so long as I end up somewhere uh, and it rather strikes me that that's what we're trying to get at in, in the discussions uh, today and also in the slides I was, uh, I was trying to find. My question really is this, is there, is there actually a role for the publisher in the impact debate? We are approached as a publisher over and over again by individual authors, by uh, journal editors, by heads of particular subject associations who say, w we don't know what to do about impact, we're confused about the way in which it will, uh, it will reflect on our work. Is there something that Emerald as a publisher or that publishing houses collectively can actually do to help um, push along the debate? And my five-minute piece really is just to say, well, 
firstly, yes, I think that there is something that we can do, both in terms of contributing to the debate and also uh, in terms of demonstrating the, the impact of work, um, but also to show you what we've been doing and, and, and uh, a framework which uh, we've tried to, tried to pull together. Uh, if you think that publishers are merely there just to, to churn out the work that um, academics actually do, then you're not going to agree with anything I say. If you think that the relationship is rather more symbiotic, that actually we can work together, then, then hopefully we'll have some, have some common ground. And, and as I say, my position, our position as a, as a publisher is that we can actually do something to, uh, to help. And, and what we've tried to do um, as a publisher over the last few years is as the debate about impact has grown, not just in, in the UK but uh, in Australia as well and, and in other countries, is actually to draw people back to, to a publishing philosophy that we've had for many years, which is that you have to have some kind of research impact in your work. There has to be some kind of a gap between theory and practice. There has to be something which can be called research that you can use. And it's not a, a UK-centric approach because we're an international publisher. Uh, it's not a new approach because we've been talking about it for, for some time. Uh, and it's not really a commercial approach either because I, I suspect we would probably do better commercially if we didn't talk about this um, than if we do. Uh, and, and it might be possible just to suggest might be possible to suggest that for scholars in business and management, which is Emerald's core area, um, well, well, it might be suggested that actually we as scholars in that area have an obligation to, to make our business and management research relevant for businesses and managers. Now, uh, uh, an ex-editor that I respect very much, he's not an ex-editor because of what he said, but he's an ex-editor because he doesn't work on the journal anymore, actually said, well, the problem with that is uh, that means English literature professors need to write novels in order to have impact. Uh, and that means that philosophy professors need to uh, become lay preachers in order to have impact. And, and, well, he may have a point, but actually I think that there is something significant here, is that if you're writing in a journal on sustainable development in Africa, surely you have to have some kind of nod towards actually what's going on in that particular part of the world. So we've been doing various things. I, I won't talk for long about them. We run um, publishing workshops, and, and, I, and I put this up on the screen purely because it struck me how similar our objectives are in those workshops with the LSE handbook, whereby the handbook, and you have it in your, in your, on, in your case, um, talks about the need to improve the title of the articles uh, and to make it more relevant and to make it catch people's eye. We did some internal research that says uh, journal articles between six and ten words long are those which are most downloaded in all of our database. And, and if your article title is more than 30, page, uh, 30 words long, then, uh, then, it, then it's not going to appear very much at all. Uh, and, and we talk in those workshops about uh, the need to disseminate the research more effectively and the need to keyword the, the research better. Uh, we won a whole load of research awards uh, rewarding either individual papers uh, or individual authors or actually um, whole research projects which have a nod towards social impact, which have a nod towards the, the long-term impact of research, which have a nod towards a more practical impact. Uh, and we ask our authors to submit not merely a, a block of text as an abstract, but to submit a structured abstract. Give us a sentence on uh, what are the research implications of your paper? What are the practical implications of your paper? What do I do with it next? Um, and, and in some cases, what are the social implications of your paper? And we're trying to help authors by drawing things out uh, and, and making things more, more obvious. And, and, and really, my, my 
My, my plea is uh, today, if, if you have ideas that, that we can help develop and that, that we're able to help you with as, as researchers and as scholars, please can you let us know? Um, because that's what we're really interested in doing. We're conscious this is a really key debate. We're conscious that there are some really important things being said, and we'd like to try to do that. Um, now, I, I, I haven't got time to tell you too much else about what we do, but we've talked about citation uh, already, and everybody's got a model, so here is ours. Um, Conventionally, impact is measured through citation, and, and again, touching on the handbook, that's, that's what's mentioned there. Um, what we've tried to do is say, well, that may be relevant for some journals, that may be relevant for, for certain uh, subject areas, but actually what we'd encourage authors to do is to try to measure research impact on a slightly wider scale, and, and we summed it up in those, uh, in, in those six areas. And uh, in addition to citation, even within that knowledge segment, that scholarship segment of, of, of that impact wheel, well... How about considering the number of downloads which a paper might have? If a journal has 300,000 article downloads per year, that suggests to me that it has some kind of impact in addition to the number of citations that it has. Um, what about the dissemination of the journal? What about the, the quality of the authors and the editors and so on? Now, now maybe you bring those back to citation in judging them, but I think there is a, a wider element that can, be, that can be picked up here. And just skipping over one or two things um, that we've done with regards to a, a matrix that we designed, I really just want to conclude with this point. I think publishers have a role in helping scholars to demonstrate the impact of their work. We've put ideas out um, amongst our editors and amongst our authors and have met with an awful lot of positive feedback. Uh, and, and if you have greater ideas, if you have further ideas, we, we, we'd really like to, to try to help you um, push those along. And, and my fear is that if we don't, and, and if we're not able to take the, the theory that says, I reckon my research ought to have impact, uh, and turn it into something practical whereby we can measure it and pin it down, well, then really we're back to the Cheshire Cat. Everybody's mad here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, can I ask my... Yeah, I'm going to um, talk from here because I don't actually have a PowerPoint. Um, so I'd like to start off actually by asking you all some questions. Um, can you stick your hand up if you use Wikipedia? Good. How many of you use it for research? A reasonable fraction. Uh, how many use it as part of your teaching? A fewer number. Um, have you looked at your research area on um, Wikipedia and how, it, do you think it's, is it covered? Is your research area covered? One, two, a few. Um, I was going to ask whether it was covered well. Um, <laughs> but have a look. Um, so Wikipedia, um, it's actually, there's only, there's um, 270 different Wikipedias, all in different languages. And they're part of a group of websites, actually, um, including sister sites with Wikimedia Commons and Wikisource and a whole lot of others. Uh, these are all operated by the found Wikimedia Foundation in the United States, which is a charity there, and they're supported by a network of chapters around the world, of which Wikimedia UK um, covers the UK. And that's a non-profit organisation completely run by volunteers, and that's kind of where I fit in. I'm a volunteer with Wikimedia UK. Uh, Wikipedia is written by um, around over 100,000 people um, from across the world. And that includes a surprising number of PhDs, actually. Um, and about 50% of contributors have an undergraduate education, and I suspect <coughs> most of the rest aren't actually just old enough yet, because um, it has quite a young demographic. It's used by over 400 million people worldwide each month, 
um, which ranges from professors to pub quiz and answer seekers. Uh, it's the top five websites in the world, and all the others in the top ten, they're all commercially orientated, commercially run. Wikimedia is the only one which is non-profit charitable, which is quite interesting. Uh, it makes it, I guess, a natural collaborator for academia in a lot of circumstances. Uh, in terms of each kind of page on the, on the site, and you can find out how often that's registered by clicking on the View History tab, and then there's a Page View Statistics link. Uh, had a look at um, Social Sciences article um, this morning, and that had um, over the last 30 days 400,000 views. So it's very well read. Um, London School of Economics is another example, 37,000 views, and that's just in the last 30 days. And if you look at any Wikipedia article, it has a huge number of readers, um, and the impact that has, the impact that the text on that site has in today's global world, I think it's absolutely sta um, staggering. Um, I'd say that Wikipedia articles are the most read summaries of any topic worldwide, possibly in human history, um, so it's worth taking notice of. Um, in particular, I guess if you want to reach places which haven't got um, uh, universities or very poor education, if you want to access the public, um, then it's how. This is kind of a good way of doing that. Um, Wikipedia kind of, it gives a background to any different topic, so whenever an article is in the news, everyone will tend to go over to um, Wikipedia and read kind of what's the background of the um, subject. Um, so it's very important to um, get that right. Um, students as well will also use it as a first step towards understanding a topic, um, which is something you should probably actually encourage them to do, and then use the references at the bottom of the articles to the, um, look further. Um, and it's basically the most visible place for people to find out about academic research, I'd say. Um, from all parts of life, business leaders, entrepreneurs, every single person you can think of, probably be using Wikipedia. Um, so it's very important to make sure it's accurate and have a look at it and try editing the site if you haven't done that yet. Um, and if you haven't done that already, kind of what's stopping you? Um, I guess one of the reasons is going to be that Wikipedia doesn't recognise experts, it recognises knowledge that can be referenced, verified. And it has a lot of citations. If you look at the bottom of any Wikipedia article, then there's normally 100 citations. It's um, very well referenced, which is actually it probably ties into the ref um, a bit in that you can look at how research is referenced, um, not just in academic circles, but also in the wider world. Um, notability does tend to be an issue, though. Uh, if you're working on a very specific area of uh, research, then Wikipedia isn't always interested, it's generally interested in the overview um, of a subject. And there's also a lack of attribution, it can be a problem, um, because you don't forget to find out easily who's editing Wikipedia. You have to look in the View History tab, it's all a bit hidden out of the way, which I guess makes it a bit difficult to assess the impact that any individual contributor can make on Wikipedia. But fundamentally, Wikipedia kind of represents a mindset change in the way that you summarise a topic. It's going from a single expert writing a topic, writing on that topic, to everyone being able to write on that topic, and it's a collaborative process right from the start, and that tends to be something that's um, missed, and you need to kind of think about that when you're editing. Um, just to summarise, um, or to conclude, uh, Wikimedia UK is a very new organisation which started up in the last few years, but we're wanting to engage with academics a lot more in the coming years. Um, starting up a number of different programs, Wikipedia workshops, uh, Wikipedia student ambassadors. So if you're interested, let us know. 
Um, and kind of in a brief summary, I say Wikipedia's got a huge global impact. It needs to be assessed, it needs to be um, quantified if you want to tie into the ref. Um, you should be actively engaging with the site as much as you possibly can. If you're not involved already, I'd love to know why um, you're not. Um, if you want to help getting involved, let me know. I'll stop there. Okay, thanks a lot. Uh, quite a number of uh, great examples of innovative uh, strategies and practices. I would, for the remainder of the time, like to open the floor for questions to you. And could you please wait until a microphone uh, is with you uh, so that people who have uh, hearing difficulties can also understand your question? Uh, in the back. Good afternoon there. Um, uh, my name is Cameron Mohammed. I'm actually a transmedia producer. I actually do a lot of work with engagement with young people in the STEM subjects. I mean, it's fantastic to hear academics are starting on with blogging. I was wondering if the panel had any knowledge or any experience with the, the new sort of term of gamification, the idea of working and using the topics that you're doing and learning and turning them into a game to make it much more interactive and increase that engagement. Uh, I have a little exposure to that field. My area of research is in the structures of protein molecules, and there was recently there was actually a, na a Nature paper published last year, which evolved out of a sort of citizen science project, which was initially trying to predict from sequence information what the what a protein molecule would look like, and people were just asked to contribute um, computer cycles from their PC uh, uh, at home. But actually, they were so interested in it that the developers produced a game which allowed uh, users to sort of play a game in order to fold up a protein and try and see if they could predict the structure and they got thousands of people uh, involved in this. I mean I did download it and have a go at it but I think I'm just not the target audience because I'm a, <laughs> I'm a professional crystallographer and also I'm a bit too old to be sort of, I, 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 the video game culture just passed me by I'm afraid. What was the name of the? Oh it's called Fold It is the name of the game and the, the producers, there's a nature paper from last summer so, and it did cause a bit of a media stir and I think it is quite popular and it's a good way and I don't know how much biochemistry it puts across to the people because it's, uh, the game was structured in a way that you, know, you didn't have to know a lot of science in order to play it and that was, uh, that's obviously a key feature to make it enjoyable but it turns out that you know, for a certain generation uh, you know, it did garner quite a big audience. Uh, there's a question there. Does it? Does it work? Yeah. Uh, Anna Sophia Legren from the University of Edinburgh. Um, very fascinating presentations and really, really good examples of, uh, of engagement. Uh, and I'm sure you also have created a lot of impact through the, that engagement. But what struck me was that most of your cases show how well you've disseminated how many you have reached, and, uh, and um, both through the blogs and also how many have come to your events. How do you actually evidence that what you've done has made any changes, i.e. How, how are you going to turn this into good ref impact case studies? Okay, thank you. Are there any more questions? We'll collect a few. Yes. Hey, dear Lewis, University of Leicester. Um, yeah, my question re relates, relates a bit to the last one as well. Um, but it's a wider question, actually. With, with something that's been occurring to me uh, during the morning is the whole issue of the impact agenda and inequalities issues. 
Um, so, relating to the last question, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. I was wondering to what degree um, you see, or w where you see sort of social media um, having a role within, and blogging and so on, um, having a role within this whole impact agenda and, and the ref and so on. And relating to the inequalities point, obviously it depends who you're engaging with and how. Um, you know, because some, something that's occurring to me is how all of this talk about impact could actually be, you know, having an effect on that sort of in terms of, well, inequalities within higher education, I suppose, also uh, more widely we could think about that. And it relates to my previous question, actually, about the prioritising of engagement with the business um, world as well. And with, with the I'm a scientist, get me out of here, actually, as well. I know that uh, physicists do a lot of work in terms of engaging women and girls in science, but I thought I was a bit disappointing that it was all men. There was one, only one female scientist there, I think, in terms of, you know, the whole sort of idea about role models for girls in that area. But, um, and, and again, I don't know whether the panel are really the people who, to comment on this, but I, it's just thinking about REF and the impact agenda and how that's going to be evaluated and whether there'll be any kind of impact, um, you know, equality assessment, um, you know, on the REF. I mean, that's just kind of something that's um, been occurring to me during one... And obviously the fact that we've got... We, ha we haven't had a woman yet on the panel up the front, so... <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, any responses? Uh, so I'm not going to hold the microphone. Just a couple of points. I mean, how do I measure the impact of my blogging activities? Very good question. Uh, I don't really know. I mean, I guess REF might come down with uh, instructions about how to do that. Page hits, obviously, is one. If that's going up, then I guess I'm doing something right. Uh, actually, finding the right forum to, to engage with a particular audience is also important. There are different sort of blogging networks out there, and they tend to target different audiences. And blogging isn't necessarily a great way to reach children. I don't think children actually read them so much. And it's more, I see it more as engaging an adult audience, people who were interested in science but no longer do it, but you know, retain, a, retain an, industry, an interest. That's a, a constituency that sort of Ben Goldhaker and people like that are very keen on. Another form of the impact in blogging that I have detected, but I, I really would struggle to put numbers on it, is the impact on my own colleagues. You know, I have received... A, a fair share of ribbing uh, from my colleagues about these activities, but actually I think the culture is slowly changed within universities. I hope that REF will take that on board and will actually, maybe that's a way to actually promote it, because it is, it is actually an effective way to use your time in order to sort of fulfill one of these uh, duties that you have. One point of information, just really on the I'm a scientist thing, I showed one panel of 20 different panels that were involved in the competition. So there were 100 scientists all together, and I'm pretty sure, knowing the organisers, that was a very good representation of women uh, on uh, overall. I think um, in terms of public engagement, lots of, of people working in universities are often working in partnership with organisations outside who have got really quite sophisticated techniques for audience feedback and evaluation um, and so often they've benefited from, from that so for instance working with say the museum sector they have quite sophisticated tools for looking at impact on people's understanding on their self-confidence on their skills etc so those techniques are often well developed outside the university sector I think the difficulty is with the ref being retrospective and people not knowing that they needed to gather this kind of information um, to give evidence of how it's, it's actually affected people, it's going to be really difficult because often it's, it's past. 
So I think there are real issues for this ref, which will get a lot easier for the one after it. Um, I just wanted to mention, with, when you've got information on Wikipedia, um, it tends, if it's correct information, then it tends to correct what everyone else is saying. So um, you tend to find that um, you talk to people about different topics and they know that something's um, a certain way just because they've read it on Wikipedia already. Um, I had some experience with the British Museum that um, we were working with the curators there and when they were asked a question by a Wikimedian and got the answer on Wikipedia, they're finding that they don't actually get asked that question anymore. People just read it all on Wikipedia. So that's quite a nice example of how getting information where it's most read will actually make an impact in people's everyday lives. I think with regard to how it impacts in the ref, on, on, <coughs> on the one hand, um, a, a publisher can't help because we're international and therefore we appeal not merely to a UK sector but, but overseas as well. But on the other hand, yes, I think we absolutely can because, for example, I would hope that if, you, if, if, if the paper that you wrote won a, an award for X thousand pounds for, for demonstrating social impact, I would hope that that would in some way count towards something that had been done. Whether that's actually something that Hefty will allow, I, I, I can't say, but I think I would hope that that's something that we can do to support that. That would be my, my response. Yeah, um, I think in, in my area it's particularly difficult with, with, with media because, um, as my colleagues never stop telling me, it's incredibly difficult to tell media effects. Um, but more seriously, it's a, uh, I think there's a sort of uh, a conflict in that one of the ways that Polis was successful uh, as a forum or a portal uh, and has achieved impact is by not saying that it's about impact. That as soon as you start narrowing your terms of engagement very uh, about functionally and very narrowly around trying to have a specific effect on policy, for example, you usually piss off the people that you're trying to, to influence. Uh, and you certainly don't do that other bit, which is about the engagement, and therefore you don't get their attention. Um, so I think the first thing is to have attention, um, you know, genuine sort of networked, uh, multi-directional attention, and that will then mean you're more likely to have uh, a real impact. One way of doing it, though, um, back in when I started, I wrote a book about a particular aspect of journalism, how it copes with new media and so on, and it was very much trying to set out what the problems were. We then came back a couple of years later and wrote a report on how people were now deploying and changing practice to respond to some of those challenges. So I, I wouldn't remotely say that the, the first publication had a particular impact. It would have been impossible to have measured it anyway. Uh, but by following up, at least you then have something which is more, than, I think, than just a narrative. Okay, I'll take a couple more questions. Hi, it's uh, Geoffrey Alderman, University of Buckingham, which has no relationship to the Research Excellence Framework, thank God. Can I ask a very quick question of our colleague who talked about bumblebees, and I'm surprised he didn't touch on this. Of what use, if any, was all this to the bumblebee population? <laughs> uh, one more question there.
uh, David Wilson. I'm at Birmingham City University, and I was interested in Charlie and also in the things that were being said by Stephen, because most of the slides you used related to The Guardian, and so this is about engagement. And I wonder if you've reached the same stage as I did two years ago, where I no longer write for The Guardian because I presumed I was already engaging with an engaged audience, and have very deliberately tried to engage with other print um, journalists, and particularly with the Daily Mail. In my own world of penal reform, um, the Guardian, by and large, has already signed up to some of the issues that I take for granted, whereas it seemed to me it would be better to try and engage with people who weren't as onside. Uh, thank you. Good point. Uh, maybe I could ask briefly to, for everybody to respond maybe to that latter point and the bumblebees in particular. Uh, on the, on the Guardian front, um, I, love the, I love the Guardian and we have lots of contact with the Guardian, but actually, no, we had, a, we had 40 speakers on Friday. I'm trying to remember, no, the one person I think from the Guardian didn't turn up. So, actually, but I, I think you're right, and that's partly what my previous response was about, in a sense, was that exactly, if you wanted to get impact, it would be really easy for me to go to the Guardian and get them to do some nice little feature or something that, that was reflective of debate. Uh, uh, sorry, research rather in, in our conference, but no, it's quite the opposite. So, uh, we deliberately target areas like celebrity journalism and so on, um, because it, it and it sometimes it may not even be. So I'm looking at Bart because he's my colleague, but and it's sometimes not always um, a central. It wouldn't be the first person they would go to, you know. So there's a bit of a, a kind of attempt to have a sort of critical dialogue within the department as well. Um. If I can answer for myself, I mean, I'm only starting out. I'm, uh, my, my father used to buy The Guardian. I grew up with it, and I'm kind of very pleased to have had the opportunity to write a few pieces for it. Um, I entirely take your point about reaching new audiences. I mean, some of what I write is just, you know, straight science, so I kind of think it's, uh, uh, you know, it's still a good audience to try and reach, uh, Guardian readers. Uh, but I, you know, I, I particularly admire, you know, people like Brian Cox, who has a column in The Sun. I think that's absolutely fantastic that he can get a regular column uh, on science into a newspaper that has a circulation still in the counted in millions. So, and yes, I would like perhaps to have the opportunity to write in the Daily Mail. I agree that's a more challenging audience. Um, going head to head with Melanie Phillips uh, has a certain amount of um, certain frisson, shall we say, of appeal, but uh, I think I might be up for it. No, I'm interested in the bumblebees. Right, bumblebees. Yeah, I should have been a bit clearer that what the research had revealed was a real crisis in the habitats in particular that bumblebees had available to them. So through the engagement, they influenced thousands of people to plant bumblebee-friendly flowers in their gardens, which presumably has had a, a benefit for the bumblebees. They influenced um, the policy around environmental protection for bumblebees and they raised awareness through getting a bumblebee on the front page of the independent um, so I think, I, I mean it's a really serious point, their, their research had revealed that there was a real problem and they felt that by engaging with the public that problem could be dealt with not sorted but at least dealt with, so I think it was a very, um, a very worthwhile project for bumblebees Okay, I would like to thank you all for your attention and I guess lunch is being uh, served.
yes, just to say we're on lunch break now and then straight after lunch there is these breaking sessions. So if you want to uh, go to session A on policy making, that's in this lecture theatre. If you want to go on second session B, uh, which is me telling you how to measure your own impact, that's in the Wolfson Theatre, which is just directly at the back here, and those will be kicking off at 2.45.